Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of The Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired April 12th, 2018, here on Connecticut Public Radio. The title of today's show is Fake News. And, of course, fake news is now a term with so many definitions that it almost lacks a definition. And we'll get to that. I have to say, we've got great guests for you, so I promise I'm not going to talk too long here at the top. But I, I do want to just give you some historical context for this. So, um, when <laughs> I have so much to say, I can't get any of it out. So, uh, when Gutenberg made his marvelous invention, printed news was not the first thing it was used for. It took a while for our, what we would call printed news to happen, but it's certainly happening uh, by the time of the British Civil War. Um, so, uh, in the middle of the 17th century. So you've got printed news, and, and it kind of has to be right. It's particularly the first people who want printed news are kind of mercantilist-driven forces. And so that stuff's got to be true. Uh, people who are using news for military planning and to run their kingdoms and stuff, that's all got to be true. It's all got to be true. And then around the middle of the 17th century, I think pretty much you know the first group of people thought, what if it doesn't have to be true? And then you get something called the Mercurius Auliculus, uh, which was a royalist sympathizer newspaper, which was full of fake news because they thought, you know what? Let's make everything look really good for the royalists. You know, let's make it look like we're right and we're winning. Does that sound familiar? So fake news is not a new idea. It's not even a new term. In uh, 1898, we encounter it in the New York newspaper mar uh, markets. People are complaining about literally using the term fake news. And then at the beginning of the 20th century, it's really like nine years later, William Jennings Bryan, also concerned about how he's being reported on, started starts his own kind of house organ newspaper where they, once again, using that exact phrase, complain about fake news. Fake news. So in the current world, uh, it was probably a phrase promulgated by again, a guy named Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed, who now has sort of said he wishes he never used it. That's another story. We'll get to that. But, you know, even knowing everything that I just said, that fake news by name has been around and, and and it's certainly been around in many forms we could talk about the great new the great moon hoax uh, which was a part of the New York newspaper world also uh, I think in the late 19th century just stuff that's just not true still when you talk to people who have studied this and I'm particularly thinking uh, of Andrew Pedigree who's a professor at uh, University of St Andrew in Scotland and who has written one of the really definitive histories of the idea of news his quote was, nothing prepared me for the 2016 development of deliberately circulated, utterly false stories. And that's somebody who can really look at the whole breadth of this situation. So what's different? What, what changed? What, why are we talking about a, a different kind of phenomenon or one with a different breadth or a different depth? Uh, we're going to talk to Lee McIntyre, research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University and an instructor, instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School, author of the book, 
Post-Truth from MIT Essential Knowledge Series. Uh, also to Jennifer Cavanaugh, political science at the Ran- scientist at the RAND Corporation and associate director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program uh, in the RAND Arroyo Center. She's the co-author of the new book, Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. Lee McIntyre, we're going to begin with you. I set a historical table, but but then I think everybody feels as though a very sharp turn got made, not in 2016, but maybe in 2014, 2015. Something else starts happening. It, to your eyes and brain, what is that something else? Um, it, I, I enjoyed hearing your, your history of fake news because it, it's important for folks to realize that, as you said, that fake news has uh, been around for a long time. Um, one thing that I explore in, uh, in Post-Truth in my book is the idea that the rise of social media has made a big difference. Um, people, uh, there, there's that old quotation about how a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. And that's even, uh, that's even more true with fake news because with social media, uh, you can spread it so easily. So uh, I didn't invent the term, but somebody else said that uh, now news has been weaponized. So folks have taken the fake news that's always existed and then it's now uh, passed around much, uh, much faster. So when we talk about uh, fake news, fake news, as you say, I mean, it sort of awaits a definition. Um, certainly when Craig Silverman from BuzzFeed started using that term, he really was specifically talking about these hoaxes, intentional hoaxes that would circulate around the Internet, sometimes because they were just sort of uh, monetizable, people really interested in knowing something about Justin Bieber, even if it wasn't true, or because they were politically weaponizable, to use that term. But, I mean, f- fake news could also be a mistake it could be something that you print uh, or circulate or perhaps even share because you don't know it's not true, right? I mean, there, there are different levels uh, of yeah. this inferno. I'm not sure I'd agree with that last part. Um, I, I like what you said before about how fake news was intentional. Uh, fake news is something that uh, is not just false. It's intentionally false. The person who has created it has done so with a purpose. Uh, that purpose can be to get you to buy their newspaper. That purpose can be to uh, get you to believe their ideology. But uh, like a lie, uh, fake news is something that has to be done deliberately. Um, when somebody is uh, spreading a falsehood where you might say, well, they should know better, but maybe they don't, or maybe they're not, at some level they do, but they're lying to themselves, I prefer to think of that as uh, willful ignorance. So. I guess I wouldn't call that fake news. And that's an important distinction to make, I think, because the term fake news uh, in its original context the last few years, uh, we're talking about fake stories that were circulated uh, on the Internet, uh, things that were created by the the Russian bots for the purpose of influencing the 2016 election, uh, et cetera. And then Trump took over the term. And now Mm -hmm. Trump uses the term fake news anytime he doesn't like something. But note that to say that, to say you know, that CNN produces fake news, for instance, one of the many claims that he makes, would be to claim that there's some sort of a giant conspiracy, that it's all intentional, so, um, which is laughable. Uh, fake news has to be intentionally false, I think. 
Right. I, when I said the other part, what I meant was, and I, I think you've just alluded to it too, I, I'll give a, I think specific examples are helpful. So uh, my significant other likes to go to a, a nursery, a plant nursery uh, across uh, the state line, uh, and, and she's uh, fond of the owners, but she doesn't really talk politics with the owners. Somehow or other, she got into a conversation with them where they explained to her in great detail uh, that uh, Barack Obama's mother-in-law, I think, or I think it's his yeah, mother-in-law would be, uh, was going to, was being paid by the federal govern, government to babysit her grandchildren in the White House and was going to be given a large federal pension as a result of that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she, she knew right away, just instinctively, that that wasn't true. She came home, mentioned it to me. I did a little research. I, I found, you know, I found the item of fake news uh, that had been concocted by somebody, you know, somebody in Velez, Macedonia or wherever, uh, and put up on the internet. Yeah. I'm not sure those people who run the plant nursery know, well, I'm actually fairly certain they don't know that's not true. They think it's really true. I think you're right about that. So um, with any, just like with a lie, uh, for every lie, there's a liar and then there's the person who's lied too. So uh, a lie has an audience. Uh, So does fake news. Uh, The person who's reading the fake news, uh, as you say, maybe believes it. They're, They're their intention might just be that they're looking at it and thinking, wow, you know, did you, uh, did you see that? Did you know that that's true? So for them, they're the ones who are being taken in on it, uh, taken in by it. And if you think of conspiracy theories, uh, that's sort of the way those go as well. Conspiracy theories can be started by folks who have an agenda, but they're passed around and believed by folks who maybe think that they're absolutely true. All right, so let's get um, Jennifer into this conversation as well. Uh, uh, So Jennifer Kavanaugh, uh, when you lay out the landscape of what you call um, truth decay, you've got sort of like, uh, I think there's sort of a a nice four-point compass uh, to that landscape. You want want to talk about some of the factors that that, uh, create this environment that we call truth decay? Yeah, we identify four drivers. The first are just the inherent biases in the way human beings process information. We tend to look for information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs and to trust personal experience and the experience of our friends and neighbors more heavily than we trust data and facts that don't necessarily relate directly to our lives. The second are changes in the information system, and that would include the rise of social media and the internet, as well as changes in the media business model, which makes it increasingly profitable to rely on commentary in place of hard-hitting investigative journalism. And in the hands of people who want to spread disinformation, tools like social media are incredibly powerful. The third factor that we point to are the increasing demands that the new information system places on schools at the same time as they're confronted with a shrinking fiscal constraint. And the result is that it's really challenging for schools to keep up with the changes in the information system and to provide students with the skills that they need to determine what is a fact and what is not. And of course, that bleeds over into the larger population, and we have a a high susceptibility uh, within the United States of people to what we call truth decay. And then the final factor is polarization. And here we're not just talking about political polarization, all that's part of it, but also economic, social, and demographic polarization and the extent to which those factors are reinforcing. So you end up with a very fragmented society in which these competing narratives or competing versions of the truth really can thrive. Right. So we've got all those things. And then and somewhere in that particular four point constellation, and I think we've said his name once so far, but it probably will not be the last time. You've got a person sitting at the top of the American pyramid right now uh, whose relationship 
with the truth uh, is almost impossible to describe. Rather than do that, uh, I'll just uh, play a little montage. This is the president. We have the all-time record in the history of Time magazine. It was almost raining. The rain should have scared him away, but God looked down and he said, we're not going to let it rain on your speech. I guess it was the biggest electoral college win since Ronald Reagan. Obamacare covers very few people. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering. I was among the earliest to criticize the rush to war. And yes, even before the war ever started, she's pledged to grant mass amnesty and in her first 100 days, end virtually all immigration enforcement. And we are, by the way, the highest taxed nation in the world. So we could actually uh, pick a few of those things uh, apart. They're all lies. All those things are lies or falsehoods or untruths or um, some of them he, he, he maybe knows are not true. Some of them he just doesn't even care whether they're true or not. Uh, somebody else could do the taxonomy. They're, they're, they're all over this place. And there may even be some things that he believes are true. Um, Lee McIntyre, when uh, like we, you can, we can pick that Jersey City thing. So this is something that Trump said during the campaign. He said that. That, um, after 9-11, there were Muslims celebrating big parties uh, in Jersey City. Fact checkers uh, from a bunch of different organizations went around and fact checked that question. It's very hard to prove that something didn't happen, but they were pretty conclusive that that was not true. But they also eventually got into the question of, of kind of falsified memory. And, and there were some Palestinians celebrating in the Middle East. And, and people may have seen that on television. One of the things that Trump said was he saw that on television and, and it was conclusively proven that no television station carried footage of Muslims in Jersey City celebrating 9-11. A, because it never happened and B, because it just literally was never on television. But he might have seen something else uh, on television. And so, Lee, maybe that gets into what Jennifer's also talking about, this kind of blurring, you know, in, in this kind of media avalanche. It's possible that Donald Trump actually does think he saw that. I suppose that's possible. That's a phenomenon that uh, psychologists call confabulation, which is when you uh, take to and it, it happens with uh, eyewitness testimony as well. When you could swear that you saw a red car, a red car, a red car, and then you look at the film and it was a blue car. So people, there's false memory. People sometimes are convinced of things that are not true. And here I, I want to draw a distinction. I was just thinking about during that uh, montage. So you said th those are all lies. Uh, and I, I think they probably are. Uh, the only question is, does Trump actually believe, uh, does he believe that they're true or not? If he thinks that they're not true, but he says them anyway, then they're lies. Otherwise, we've got a little bit uh, more work to do. But the, uh, the analogy that I was thinking of is that lying is to speech what fake news is to news. So if Trump is lying and you know, he's just saying something that he knows is absolutely false, um, then that's like fake news. But if he's saying something that he thinks, well, really, it might be true and he's just being lazy or that even that he's convinced that it's true, then it's more like a newspaper uh, making a mistake or just lazy reporting where they have to come back later and correct it. Trump, of course, never admits that he makes any mistakes, so he doesn't do that. And it's hard, as you said, to get inside somebody's head and to know whether they are telling the lie intentionally or not. I'll say that his standard must be very low because to claim that he saw something on TV, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty high standard of, uh, of evidence there because 
you know, uh, there are only a finite number of TV stations he could have seen it on where he was during that time. And if somebody's gone through exhaustively and found that it wasn't on TV, then that's it. So, Jennifer, uh, you know, let's we can even pick something that's not terribly political. Let's take um, anti-vaxxers. You ha- can have a group of people saying, well, look, uh, we have some concerns. Vaccines may, in fact, unintentionally induce autism. There may be other reasons not to vaccinate. You can have uh, this vast cohort, cohort of scientific and medical personnel saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> Please don't believe that. It's a very dangerous thing to believe, to have diseases that are essentially eradicated, popping up because people don't get vaccinated. And you would think, Jennifer, that there would be a pretty easy way to referee this question, right? That somebody could stand there in a striped shirt and a whistle, metaphorically, and say, "Uh uh-uh, that one's wrong, that one's right. Somehow or other, that mechanism is broken. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really important to recognize the extent to which this is a bipartisan phenomenon. Uh, you ex- you suggested that the shift really occurred around 2014. In our report, we suggest that the shift really started in the early 2000s. And we don't think that it occurred because of any one person or any one political event or any one political party, but rather the confluence of those four factors and the way they were interacting at the time. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about the vaccine controversy, because vaccines is an area where there are vaccine skeptics clearly on both sides of the political spectrum. <clears throat> and the reason why facts, I think, in this area are often not persuasive to those people who are skeptical is because beliefs often form based on emotions. Uh, and once a belief forms, it's really hard to change it, to replace that information with factual information. So if the first thing someone comes across about vaccines is the retracted study that suggests that vaccines are linked to autism and they form a belief that the vaccines are not safe, no matter how many facts they see after that, it may be really difficult to dissuade them and to convince them otherwise because they're wedded to that initial belief. And so a really important question is, how do we get people to change their mind in these, on these issues like vaccines, like GMOs, where their belief may be based on a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding? One reason why there's, it's difficult to communicate this is because scientific evidence is, number one, always evolving and changing. And that can be difficult to communicate to an audience that doesn't have technical scientific knowledge. And also that scientific evidence often isn't something that someone can touch. But the counterexamples are very powerful. The, the one child who got sick from a vaccine, that's a powerful counterexample. And facts and data don't have the same emotional power. So it's important to think about how do we communicate those messages about certainty in the area of scientific findings? And who are the credible messengers that can provide those, that information? Yeah, we should say that even that story uh, does link to Trump. And I was listening to an in, uh, interview with Talia Shiro, who's doing a lot of uh, uh, research right now into the role of the amygdala and hippocampus in the way that we process information. And she described, and she's a scientist, she's a neuroscientist, she wa- des- described watching Donald Trump articulate essentially an anti-vaxxer cause and describe in very visceral and personal terms, I think a member of his staff who had a baby who had some kind of problem. And she said, you know, watching that, I started to wonder. She said, I had a six-week-old baby in my own life, and I'm a scientist, and I started watching that. And and something, he just described it so well and so viscerally in these purely anecdotal terms. There was part of me that didn't want to get my baby vaccinated. Yeah, um, yeah Anecdotes are powerful, and yeah. that's one of the challenges that we have when we're trying to spread facts. And it's been a challenge in the vaccine area going back, you know, a, pre- a significant amount of time. Uh, is how do we give our factual data the same emotional weight as 
the counterexample. Right. And you probably saw the study that came out recently. It came out of one of the MIT labs where they, they found that false stories circulated faster than true mm-hmm. stories. Uh, right. The, yeah. And you, more deep and deeper into social networks. Right. They, they just, they, for example, they, they sort of timed how long it took for one story to get 200 shares, another story to get 200 shares. And the ones that weren't true, and I think maybe one reason that, the, that they were spreading faster is that the ones, you're first of all not bound by those boring old facts. You can make the story as colorful and interesting as you can. And certainly the idea that something is being withheld from you, some vital piece of information about, for example, vaccines, that's a much more exciting narrative than, hey, vaccines work just like you thought. Right, exactly. That's part of the challenge. And so I think part of the challenge is on the people uh, who are consuming the information to take the time to think about it, to critically evaluate it, to look at many sources, And part of the responsibility is on the behalf of the communicator who has to think about how can I communicate this message in a way that people will be able to receive and relate to the stories that I'm telling. Let me come back to you for a second, Lee. You know, you talked about the um, notion that information could be weaponized uh, in in a social media environment. It, not only weaponized, but monetized. So, I mean, we do know about this town in Macedonia, Velez, I think it's called. It has 45,000 people. And this burgeoning fake news industry. They create these sites that have kind of American-sounding names. They, they post up stories about, you know, how the Pope has endorsed Donald Trump or, or, or something like that. And what they've discovered, and they don't care. I mean— uh, BuzzFeed did a lot of reporting about this. They don't care about Donald Trump. (laughs) They're not Donald Trump supporters. They've just realized that there's an economic model that Mark Zuckerberg right now is trying to explain to Congress where information like that, if it's if it's well crafted, if, if it if it kicks some of the tripwires that Jennifer is talking about, you can just make money off of think, telling things that are not true, which is I think at least at the level is happening. That's a new development, right? I think it's important to point out that uh, what starts out of something with a monetary interest can end up being something that has political consequences. It can uh, evolve into ideology. I'll give you an example. The uh, the story that we're talking about with vaccines, uh, Andrew Wakefield, the doctor who was uh, in Britain who uh, did the original study, it was actually found that his study was fraudulent, uh, not just that it was a mistake, but that it was fraud. And one uh, reason people think that it was fraudulent, you know, why did he create this false information, is because he had a financial interest in a vaccine that was competing against the MMR. So that's a good example of how something that starts out with a financial interest uh, can end up, uh, you know, causing great harm as it becomes ideological. The people who are uh, today sitting out there listening and wondering whether uh, vaccines r- relate to autism, I bet they didn't know that uh, Wakefield was uh, stripped of his medical license and that uh, he was found to have a uh, that he was found to have a financial interest in that competing vaccine. So that's a good example. Right. And we should say that one of the things that makes um, the current use of social media unusual is that you can circulate a false story, a piece of fake news, to a very small audience, an audience that is, in in fact, uh, tailor-made to your goals, and and do it in such a surgical way that the rest of the world doesn't even know that you're telling the story. So, I mean, you know, the rest of the world may have an interest in fact-checking something that you're saying, except that they don't know that it has ever been said. It's seen by a very small group of eyes. All right. We have to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk uh, more with these great guests about fake news. You are fake news. The New York Times. You are fake news. CBS. NBC. ABC. BBC. LA Times. You are fake news. The Washington Post. You are fake news. CNN. Very fake news. 
Politico, AP, Hotball, BuzzFeed, Failing Pile of Garbage, and I've been hearing more and more about a thing called fake news. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired April 12, 2018, here on Connecticut Public Radio. We are back. We are talking uh, about fake news. Uh, when we talk about fake news, we are trying to talk about it, uh, about uh, the instances where someone intentionally creates a piece of news, which is not true, uh, circulates that uh, piece of news for the purpose of deceiving people about the true nature of reality. Um, so joining us from the studios at Harvard University, Lee McIntyre, research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. His book is Post-Truth from the MIT Essential Knowledge Series. Jennifer Cavanaugh joining us by phone. Uh, Jennifer Cavanaugh is political scientist at RAND Corporation, associate director of the Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program in the RAND Arroyo Center. She's the author of the co-author of the new book, Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. So, you know, Jennifer Cavanaugh, a few minutes ago, I asked you about, you know, why isn't there somebody uh, there with a, a striped shirt and a whistle uh, to, to say, okay, well, that thing's true and that thing's false. You know, there was a time where uh, the legacy, as we now call it, the legacy news media, could do that, right? Walter Cronkite could come on here and say, you know what, things in Vietnam are not as you have been told. Uh, I've been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, here's what I think is going on. And that could create a tremendous upheaval because nobody uh, thought, or very few people, distrusted Walter Cronkite. That was just kind of the nature of the beast. But as you look at Gallup's uh, continuing assessment uh, of the news media, and, and most recently a disturbing Monmouth uh, poll in which three out of four respondents said that uh, the, the mainstream news circulates, quote, fake news, unquote. They didn't, they didn't really define what they meant by fake news in the poll. But clearly, the people who should be vetting and curating truth aren't trusted to do it, right? Well, certainly trust in the media has declined, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. I actually, I'm not sure that fake news is really that useful of a term because it's being used in so many different ways, as right. you mentioned at the start. I think it's more helpful to think about what's actually, what, what type of information is actually being spread. So disinformation is information that's intentionally wrong and that is being spread intentionally incorrect. Misinformation is just, it can be just a mistake. I just made a mistake or I have the wrong information, but I didn't mean any harm in doing it. And then there's a, a whole different, a whole range of options between that, you know, misleading information or biased information. I think it's more useful to talk about it in that sense. But I think the reason that the trust in the media has declined so severely relates to a number of factors. I mean, number one, obviously, social media and the rise of digital journalism has played a big role because we have so much more information available to us now, and it's so much easier to access that we don't need gatekeepers or people to filter the information for us. But that also means that it's a lot easier for disinformation and misinformation and confusing narratives to populate our social media feeds. And that makes it really hard to determine what's a fact and what's not. So that is part of the problem. Another part of the problem is that we remember mistakes or instances where various media outlets have either made an error or intentionally uh, deceived the audience. And it's important to distinguish between news outlets that are still focused on investigative journalism and news outlets that have different motives or different um, 
different ideologies or different reasons for being. And there's been an explosion of those, too. We have so many more new sources now that it can be difficult to determine what is a good source and what is not a good source. And in that era of confusion, a lot of people just kind of turn away from those sources because they can't be sure what to trust and what not to trust. And so part of that skepticism, I think, is justified. Um, There are reasons to distrust organizations that have been found to make mistakes or to lie to us in the past. But it's important also to then uh, couch that or limit that distrust or skepticism by recognizing institutions and organizations that are still providing facts. And so it's really a measured skepticism that is kind of the, the maybe the more appropriate way to think about it. Right. But and it's it's hard to it's it's hard to teach someone what what that measured level of skepticism is. Right. And increasingly, there are curricula being circulated around at the high school and college level. Digital right. digital literacy, media literacy, news literacy. There are a lot of different terms for it. Uh, there's a, a a curriculum called Calling BS, although I think they actually use the word that once again helps people understand this stuff. I mean, one thing that I say to my students about you know how to evaluate news media for uh, for trust uh, is do they correct their mistakes uh, like the New York Times they only make a lot of mistakes they run a lot of corrections too right away that distinguishes them from an awful lot of other media institutions you know um, Lee McIntyre I'm going to have you listen to a clip it's a clip I think you know well uh, this is uh, in 2016 at the Republican National Convention we're going to hear um, a CNN correspondent um, Allison Camarota uh, talking to Newt Gingrich about the national crime rate. Crime yeah. is down in America. Violent crime is down. The economy not is ticking up. Bi- it is not down in the biggest cities. Violent crime murder rate is down. The average American, I will bet you this morning, does not think crime is down, does not think they are safer. But it is. We are safer and it is down. No, that's your view. No, what I said is also a fact. The current view is that liberals have a whole set of statistics which theoretically may be right, but it's not where human beings are. But hold on, oh. uh, Mr. Speaker, because you're saying liberals use these numbers, they use this sort of sure. magic math. This is uh, the FBI statistics. They're not a liberal organization. No, They're but what I said is equally true. People feel, feel more threatened. Yes, they feel it, but the facts don't support Fine. it. As a, as a political ca- candidate, I'll go with how people feel, and I'll let you go with the theoreticians. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, Lee McIntyre, go ahead and parse that. I am so glad you played that. That's on uh, That transcript of that is on page 3-4 of my book, uh, Post-Truth, where I use it as an example of what I think is post-truth. Um, so I'm uncomfortable with the idea that um, this is all a, a bipartisan phenomena because I think that's to create a kind of uh, false equivalence to say that you know there, there's fake news on both sides, that you know there's lying on both sides. Because I think the example with Newt Gingrich shows clearly this is a political strategy. Uh, Newt Gingrich knows better. He knows what the Uniform Crime Report is. But he's, he's lying and he's lying for a particular political purpose. And um, so I th- one thing that I wrote about a little bit in the book, but I followed up later with an op-ed, one thing that I'm really concerned about is that this kind of lying uh, really has its roots back in science denial. But it's used now to deny any sort of facts that you want, facts about whether there's a crisis at the border, about whether the murder rate's going up or down. And I think that it's the first step toward authoritarian rule. And I know that that might sound a little shocking to people or a little uh, overstating the case. But that's the thing that I'm actually worried about now after writing the book and 
watching the way that uh, that things have gone since then. Because um, to be able to just sit there and make a claim that how you feel about the crime rate is more important than the actual statistics on the crime rate, we're deep into 1984. And I don't think that's bipartisan. I think that that's a, a partisan strategy that has been uh, you know, that was started by Gingrich and folks like him who are, that's culminated in the post-truth era that we now live in. Yeah, I, 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 listening to that clip, I also was reminded of 1986. And here, I don't think this was quite as, uh, as intentional. I think this has more to do with who he really was as a person. But in 1986, Ronald Reagan uh, told the American people in an address to television, he, he said, uh, we did not, I repeat, we did not trade arms for hostages. Uh, and then uh, he had to come back a few months later after the Tower Commission yeah. made his report. And he said, a few, I've got it in front of me. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and evidence tell me it is not. You know, and when he said that sentence, he's really sort of uh, positing. And, and I don't think he did it in this intentional citizen way. I think that's really how he thought about it. Well, there might be two different realities. The one that my heart and my best intentions told me about and the one that all these facts told me about. And that's sort of opening the door to the notion that subjective reality is every bit as valid as objective reality. Well, I mean, look, one thing that is bipartisan is we all have cognitive biases. Uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a terrific book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm -hmm. And uh, one that uh, I I know that uh, Jennifer knows as, as well as I do is confirmation bias. When you're out there looking for something that uh, confirms what you, you you want to believe something, and so you go looking for evidence that confirms it. So somebody like uh, you talk about the statement from Reagan in 1986. So maybe he wanted to believe that. Maybe that was more convenient for him to believe that they didn't trade arms for hostages because it made him feel better about the decision that he made. But at some level, uh, he was not exercising his skeptical judgment. At some level, he was just giving in to the cognitive bias. So that can be bipartisan. But um, if you look at the examples of science denial uh, back to the 1950s with the link between uh, cigarette smoking and cancer and what the American Tobacco Institute did to try to deny that, up to today, uh, when you see what the uh, right wing is, uh, just today, uh, Mike Pompeo was saying in his confirmation hearings that he thought that the science was inconclusive about climate change. That's a strategy. That's not bipartisan. That's a uh, that's a right wing strategy to deny facts and reality for a political purpose. Um, uh, well, let me just as we're kind of wrapping up this segment, uh, Jennifer Kavanaugh, um, you know, he used the term confirmation bias. One thing we know about the social media environment, Facebook in particular, is uh, Matthew Iglesias called it a confirmation bias machine. Uh, if 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 you want to do a little experiment, set up a different profile uh, than the one that you have, and then just click on a whole bunch of things that believe the opposite of whatever you believe, uh, the, the political uh, partisan opposite of what you believe, and then see what starts getting sent to you, you know, and you'll have a completely different information ecosystem than the one that you have naturally and organically, which is also created through confirmation bias, right? I mean, Jennifer, in a way, we've never had before. We've had confirmation bias since the dawn of civilization. I don't know that we've ever had an engine for it that works algorithmically the way this one does. That's right. It certainly is much easier now to ensure that you are only confronted with information that agrees with you and to seek out information that agrees with you. You can Google almost anything and find somebody who agrees with your going-in assumption. 
And it's it's tempting to think of the filters and algorithms that are uh, running these platforms as um, unbiased because they are, uh, you know, they're done by coders, right? How can coding be biased? But of course, coders are only coding, coding and filters and algorithms are, are only as unbiased as the data that they're trained on and the people who are coding them. And they learn. They learn what you like, and they filter you more of that information. And anybody who has ever Googled like flights to Australia has experienced this, because then the ads you get for the next you know, year are different things that are in Australia. And so this targeted strategy of figuring out what you like and giving you more of that just reinforces uh, the confirmation bias and ends up putting us into um, eco chambers. And um, uh, the, we don't, are not confronted with information that uh, disagrees with us. Right. All right. We're going to take a break here. Um, I have like a whole other journalism theory about that that I don't have time to talk about. We're going to take a break here. We're going to thank Jennifer Kavanaugh very much. We're going to add a different guest to our mix. Benjamin Decker will be joining us after this break. The news is fake because so much of the news is fake. One of the reasons I'm here today is to tell you the whole Russian thing, that's a ruse. Russia is fake news. Russia, this is fake news. Well, I own nothing in Russia. I have no loans in Russia. You're listening to a rebroadcast of the Colin McEnroe Show. It originally aired April 12th, 2018, here on Connecticut Public Radio. Today's show was produced by Justin Bieber and the Pope. Josh Nalea no longer works here because he gave free pizzas to ISIS. Amanda Fish is a real person and not just a name we find funny. Our intern is Julius Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Roger Stone. And now, back to Colin. All right. Today we are talking about fake news, although, as our guests have suggested, that's such a confusing term we probably shouldn't even be using that. Um, Lee McIntyre is still with us. Um, his book is Post-Truth from the MIT Essential Knowledge Series. Uh, Benjamin Decker joining us now, research fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, uh, and Public Policy at Harvard University, former research coordinator at Storyful. So, Benjamin Decker, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, in uh, 2017, um, the Pew Research Center and uh, Elon University's Imagining the Internet Center uh, did a canvassing of technology people, scholars, practitioners, strategic thinkers. For all I know, you're one of the people that they canvassed. And they asked them this question, you know, in the next 10 years, are we going to be able through normal, trustworthy media to block false narratives and allow the most accurate information to prevail over false, fake crap in, in the news ecosystem? Or will we lose the arms race? Will the people who are purveying this stuff um, just get better and better at it and we won't be able to keep up with them? Because there is kind of an arms race. So I don't know if you answered that question, but how would you answer that question? Would you bet as an optimist or as a pessimist? Um, I think I, you know, I'm going to have to plead the fifth and, and side somewhere in the middle of that argument because I think there's some really interesting variables that we're not very clear on, particularly as it relates to uh, ostensibly the grassroots democratization of said tech arms race. Um, we've seen a number of, you know, examples uh, even over the past several weeks online as far as, you know, disinformation around major uh, news narrative goes that actually have very low-tech, easily defendable um, instances of, you know, for argument's sake, fake news. 
um, in that sense. We should give an example of that. So I think you're referring to just, for example, um, a GIF, a doctored GIF Mm -hmm. that shows Emma uh, uh, Gonzalez, one of the Parkland um, students, ripping up the Constitution. Of course. So if we take um, that doctored GIF, which had been based on a Teen Vogue uh, GIF from their March um, cover issue, uh, what happened was essentially uh, a number of uh, trollish 4chan users began discussing how great it would be to literally create a doctored uh, version of that content uh, in which she um, is um, performing you know, very unpatriotic acts. Um, as that doctored give appeared on Twitter, um, literally anyone uh, who uses Google could have debunked it uh, within about 60 seconds because of the lack of technological advanced approaches to it. Um, because in a Google reverse image search, simply by right-clicking on the photo, um, it will literally direct you to the actual 4chan conversation in which the piece of content was created. So if we're looking at you know Photoshopped GIFs, um, and how that moves forward on you know a low tech perspective, I'm very optimistic uh, about the 10 year um, sort of forecast. However, um, if we start to you know discuss some of the more advanced media manipulation tactics, like um, the prospect of actually completely doctored and manipulated videos, um, I become much more pessimistic because there are a combination of interdisciplinary subject expertises that are required, um, some of which are very, very technical, and others are, you know, far more academic. And creating a collaborative culture to address the big issues uh, is going to be a big hurdle, I think, specifically, you know, as it relates to uh, the coming together of for-profit and non-profit um, industry players. Right. So um, what uh, he's referring to, you may have seen or read uh, about how increasingly easy it's going to be to uh, um, superimpose uh, faces uh, onto bodies that we're not doing, the things that the, the well-known faces would have ever done, or to make voices come out of those faces that sound an awful lot like the real face voices. We'll give you a little example of this. Uh, this is a, a clip. You're going to hear computer-generated voices of uh, Donald Trump uh, and uh, uh, Barack Obama, they did not ever say the words, uh, at least not in the sequence, that you're hearing them say. The United States is considering, in addition to other options, stopping all trade with any country doing business with North Korea. North Korea has conducted a major nuclear test. Their words and actions continue to be very hostile and dangerous to the United States. Michelle and I are thinking of the victims and their families in Barcelona. Americans will always stand with our Spanish friends. John McCain is an American hero and one of the bravest fighters I've ever known. Cancer doesn't know what it's up against. Give it hell, John. Um, Benjamin, in a way, those do still sound an awful lot like uh, some voice on an elevator uh, telling me what floor is coming up. But but it's going to get better is the wrong word. It's going to get more convincing, right? Correct. And I I think when we're really looking and talking about the tech arms race and, you know, artificial intelligence— um, you know, they're predictive things that the purveyors of uh, disinformation um, can do to kind of enhance this over time by learning more about uh, the actual voice and the intonations of a specific person's diction. Um, and at the same time, uh, for those of us um, attempting to um, filter through uh, toxic or otherwise questionable content, 
like manipulated video or audio, um, there is going to be a lot of sort of discussions and development and, and learning and exploring um, to train sort of the opposing artificial intelligence to kind of compete with um, the various ways you can manipulate either on, you know, sort of the optical front end uh, that a user would see on Facebook or on the back end that an engineer at, you know, a research institution, a newsroom, or even a social media platform could identify, um, you know, an early proactive uh, detection system to know that something that has been pushed out and is gaining sort of uh, velocity and amplification on Facebook uh, is actually, in fact, fake. Um, so I think that is a, a really great example of, you know, the arms race that uh, I think is, is beginning to happen behind closed doors right now. Right. So, I mean, another problem, um, Lee, another problem here is, you know, these things can come from one source or another source. And those sources are often, you know, pretty remote corners of the dark web. But there's a, a kind of um, big fish eating little fish, bigger fish eating big fish and, and so on. It's, uh, I think Jeff Jarvis talked about things going from 4chan and 8chan to Alex Jones to Breitbart to Trump to Fox to CNN to you. Um, you know, sometimes in the course of either repeating things these things or in some cases correcting things. But, you know, even that that little link of maybe Trump getting something from Breitbart, Fox getting it from Trump, Fox sometimes repeating it back to Trump, who gets an awful lot of his news from Fox, and then maybe CNN tries to deal with it in some kind of way. But at this point, the falsehood is driving the agenda of all kinds of news organizations. Yeah. Um, the thing that's frightening, the, uh, what Benjamin was describing, uh, I, I wasn't too long ago that I was watching a, a clip. Um, I can't remember the source, uh, but it was a uh, it was about a technological program where they could have a speaker, uh, you know, speak into the microphone for twenty minutes, say particular words, and then use those, manipulate those words, and then manipulate the image to then create a film where that person was saying whatever you wanted them to say. And so I imagine a date when fake news will not just be text, but fake news will be very, very well produced uh, video uh, images like the the one that uh, you talk about how easy it is to debunk the one where uh, uh, Emma was uh, tearing up, I think it was an, uh, an NRA, I think it was a, a, a target, mm -hmm. and then somebody manipulated it to make it look like it was the Constitution. Uh, what's going to happen uh, when the technology gets so much better that uh, that people can't tell? And then there's one other thing that I worry about, which is maybe the uh, even darker than that, which is what's going to happen when not only we can't tell, but when people don't care. Um, I can imagine that some folks might be watching uh, a video in which uh, she's tearing up the Constitution and they know that it's fake, but they enjoy watching it anyway. Uh, they they enjoy talking to their friends about it. They will say things like, "Well, it, it it's probably true, or it seems true." That's that's the real worry when our critical thinking skills and our skepticism uh, erode to the point where we're really not even trying to tell whether something is fake or not. Uh, and in an environment in which you're confused all the time and you can't tell what's fake and what's not, who profits? It's the person who's got propaganda, the person who wants to manipulate you into believing something that's not true. Although, Benjamin Decker, we only got a couple of minutes left here. But I mean, the other part of this is that if, in fact, there's going to be some kind of necessity to discredit some of these um, technologically manufactured, slick looking products that, in fact, are, are total fakes, the superimposition of fake voices onto 
computer-generated faces swapped onto different bodies and stuff like that. That process, unfortunately, is very uh, exploitable and borrowable as well. So you've got President Trump saying, oh, you know what? Uh, come to think of it, that Access Hollywood tape of me, that was that's fake too. That was done in that way. I mean, the minute anything can be discredited, the truth can be discredited too. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, what we're really seeing is the kind of ultimate convergence of the Rashomon effect, um, you know, kind of made famous from the 1950 Akira Kurosawa film, in which, you know, an incident happens, there's my truth, your truth, and the truth, and nobody is lying. Um, so essentially, in these situations where there's an absence of evidence to disqualify any version of the truth, um, that exists online. And I think, you know, to Lee's point, what is concerning, and, and ultimately, I think actually concluding that I am slightly more pessimistic about this, is that a lot of people were sharing, uh, you know, the Emma Gonzalez gif, uh, knowing full well that uh, it was faked, and very happy to just see content that um, fit in line with their belief system. So, um, you know, I think that uh, ultimately we're going to need to begin talking about this as uh, a national security issue in, in literally the sort of health of social discourse and being able to continue to accept, um, you know, differing opinions in a multicultural society. Um, and, and I think that ultimately is kind of the role uh, of the media to almost zoom out and step out of, um, you know, the personal politics that, you know, we all bring to the table and start having these hard discussions, um, you know, about how to move forward properly. Right. Uh, OK, we have to stop here. I should tell you, that there's a sort of a little punchline to the question I began with with Benjamin, which is that uh, when the Pew Research Center did that study, they asked over a thousand uh, experts in a very non-scientific canvassing. Fifty one percent were declinists. 49% said, no, we're going to catch up to this problem and deal with it effectively. So to be continued. Uh, thanks to Benjamin Decker, research fellow at the Shorenstein Center, uh, and to Lee McIntyre. His book is Post-Truth from the MIT Essential Knowledge Series. Thanks to Josh DeLeo, who really does exist and produced this show. We'll be back tomorrow. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake. Phony, fake. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. They are the enemy of the people. Fake, phony, fake, fake, phony, fake.